So, does anyone have any questions or anything to be to start us off with? Or? I struggle because I look at my false self through my false self. Well, you know, that, that is really true in a very deep and profound sense. Yes, yes you, 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 okay. Let me turn this on too. <laughs> okay. If I'm going to repeat it for the recording, I'd better turn the recording on. <laughs> okay. So, uh, you say that you are concerned that you realize that you're looking at this false self through the false self. Yes. And that is very much true. Although, that's the only way we can do it to start with. And so really, you know, uh, we do we do have to begin with where we are and what we are and uh, that's the, the the paradox of the whole thing that the only way that we can transcend the self is by using what we have to start with and, and so that's what we do but if you think about it what is happening all of the time is that your mind is just turning back on itself and examining its own contents which it has generated right so it's the and and this is the self that we are familiar with in the very deepest sense is nothing other than this mind reflecting on itself and playing the role of both subject and object. And this is true not only of when we're looking into ourselves to see who we really are, but this is actually true when we imagine that we're looking out and seeing the world and the universe. Because in fact, uh, all that we really see and take as object is what the mind has generated to account for the sensory experiences that have arisen. So it is really true that, that the entirety of your, of your conscious cognitive processing is just the mind looking at itself in one way or another and taking it as object. And the element of falsity in it is that it takes its own the mind as subject takes its own projections as object and imputes to them a degree of substantial reality that is false. And that's where the, that's where the whole falsity lies. But the wonderful thing is that the mind is capable of coming to understand that. Um, which brings up something, you know, We, in, in so much of what we read and spiritual teachings in general from every tradition, at a certain point we encounter the problem of ineffability, that 
beyond a certain point, any description is an, is inadequate. And they say that well, at from this point on, you know, that uh, what is known cannot be known by the conceptual mind, and therefore can't be spoken of. The the Tao that is the true Tao is not the Tao that can be spoken, right? And in all of these different ways, and that is absolutely true. I'm not questioning that at all not challenging that at all. But when I say that we have to start where we are, and we can, I can give you some other examples. Um, physicists can very comfortably talk about multi-dimensional realities beyond the four dimensions that our minds are capable of understanding. Um, through Mathematics as a tool, which no one really knows what mathematics is, but they know that there's something about the way our minds operate that corresponds to with something about the way that whatever that unknown reality is out there that we're constantly interacting with seems to follow the same set of rules. And because these rules are embedded in or reflected in or if you think that mind is of the same stuff that whatever the unknown out there is that for whatever the reason I mean that's a whole different thing but it really does seem that the operation of the mind intrinsically follows the same kinds of rules that that which we can't know directly but we're trying to understand does and so scientists, physicists, through mathematics, are able to understand, work with, uh, manipulate things that are quite patently, completely beyond the ability of the mind to conceptualize, right? Just as, just as much as nirvana is beyond the ability of the mind to conceptualize, you know, or the ultimate nature of reality as being uh, an unfathomable emptiness is beyond the nature of the mind to conceptualize. So there's an exact parallel in that. But if through if through using the mind that we have with its limitations, physicists can do that, we can do the same thing. And in fact, on the contemplative and spiritual path, that is the way we use our intellect. That is the way we use our mind. And that is the way that we use our normal capacity for understanding and interpreting reality. So even though we have this experience that, well, this is a real solid, concrete reality. I mean, how, how could any foolish contemplative contest the reality and the solidity of this object. I mean, every, everybody I give it to is going to agree. You know, it's about its shape, how it feels, its size, its sound, you know. And that is, of course, how everybody in the world responds. That, well, yes, there's this reality out there, and we all know it, so how, how can you dispute that? But we can look at that and realize that, well, What's that? It's not solid. 
It's not solid. It's not solid at all. Not only that, everything that we know about the nature of its existence has actually arisen in the mind. If we look at the raw material our mind has to work with, it's nothing but sensation. Okay? And we might start off saying, yeah, okay, that's true, but, you know, still, mm -hmm, hard, cold, yeah, everything else. But then, and this is where we bring the contemplative aspect into it, we train our minds, and then we go back and examine those sensations. And we, well, okay, hard, yeah, all right, that's just something my mind has put on there as well. And cold, that's an interpretation. What is really there? And it kind of dissolves into, when we look really closely, there's just this continuous flux of something that is of a vaguely vibratory nature, but there are repeated patterns within it that the mind grasps onto and seizes onto and, and, and makes makes have a certain kind of reality. And, and so our mind takes sensation and it takes hardness and softness and coldness and warmness and thisness and, and it gets a whole bunch of sensory, basic sort of sensory interpretations, which now it begins to add together. We'll take two of these and one of these and now we have this other quality, which is just a concept fabricated out of... And then we take those and we build them up until we've got a whole world that makes sense to us. Right? And we all have similar minds, and so they work in similar ways, but not exactly the same ways. And so we reassure ourselves that the world that we perceive is real, because we can talk to each other and we say similar things. But we'd probably absolutely be absolutely shocked if any one of us could actually perceive the world through somebody else's eyes. Because although we can use a lot of the same language to describe it, you know, somewhere along the line, you know, it, it would be, uh, well, to start with, logically, we would just say, well, there's a pretty good chance that somewhere along the line there's some things that aren't the same, you know. And, of course, if what I call red, you, uh, uh, you see as what I call green, we could talk on forever and never know that there's any difference, because every time... I said red, meaning what I see is red, you would say, uh-huh, yep, I agree, and, but you would mean, if I could see through your eyes, what I call green, and we'd never know. And so there's a good chance for that. But not only that, we know that that's not true. Because as soon, I mean, even starting with an object like this, we find that everybody perceives it in subtly different ways. But as soon as we get to anything more complicated than the most basic kind of object, we find that our perceptions diverge more and more and more. You know, so uh, we might find some differences in perception about this bowl, but then if we take another person that we both know, we're going to find much greater differences in perception. And of course, if we find if we take something as complex and actually potentially infinite in its detail as the situation we find ourselves in right now. These have diverged so much that I can confidently say 
Every one of us is in a different reality here. So where does it all come from? From the mind. So, you can follow that. It's like a physicist using uh, mathematic and experiment, the combination of those, the application of logic to experience, to conclude that things aren't necessarily the way they appear to be, and actually come up with a way of understanding things that actually works better. And we can do the same thing too. We can take our own experience, which we can verify over and over again in many ways, and apply uh, logic and rational thought to its interpretation and realize that things are not necessarily the way we've always assumed that they are. And we can take that understanding bring it back to our experience of the world, reapply it over and over again, and gradually we'll come to have a completely new and more powerful way of seeing things. We can apply exactly that same thing to introspection and self-examination, which is notoriously more difficult than examining what's around us. But all of the same principles apply. Isn't that the next level of illusion? That's that is yes because but it's actually the same level of illusion. It's the next level in that we put when we take ourself as object, we put that in a separate category than when we take our mind's projection of everything else as object, and that is and, okay. So when we take ourself as object in our minds, in the way that we feel about that and react to that, and just right right through the whole gamut of psychological experience. When we direct our attention to self as object, it's kind of a whole new different ball game than looking at everything else. It has we make it special and different and separate. So it comes with its own set of illusions, but all the same principles apply. <laughs> Sometimes I reach a point where I feel understanding. My understanding is like a knife trying to cut itself. Mm-hmm. And that the task is to put the knife down and to let go of the understanding. The, the, the understanding seems to help build the illusion. Mm-hmm. And, and not having to understand seems to let go of that. That's right, yes. There is this interaction between, we have, you have a kind of direct experience that is a part of, of every moment. And then we have added to that the mind's own reflexive self, uh, self-examining. So, When you, what you're talking about is the fact that we discover that we can let go of that reflexive part from time to time. In other words, as you put it, and it's very appropriate, I think, the knife can stop trying to cut itself. And if you let go of that reflexive part of it, then you find, for 
however long or brief a time it is, you can have this experience, this direct experience of consciousness uh, and contents of consciousness. It's still a dualistic experience, but it is not a dualistic experience that has gone to the next step of the mind bending back on itself and taking itself as a real object. It is just the experience of being in the moment. And that's that's one of the things that we discovered through uh, meditative practice, through, through contemplative practices, is, and as a matter of fact, one of the things that I think uh, all of you are probably familiar with, is you come to that point where, where you, you really wish your mind would just stop doing this. Have that feeling like, you know, just, just for a minute, if we just stop and just be. <laughs> be here now. Yeah. And that, that is where we, where we want to go. That's where we need to go. But as long as your mind hasn't stopped yet and isn't ready to stop yet, then you keep in mind that the way the mind works, somehow or another, allows it to penetrate beyond appearances in terms of understanding. So even though, uh, you know, to fall back on an entirely Western example, even though Immanuel Kant made a totally convincing argument in his Critique of Pure Reason that the human mind is incapable of functioning except in terms of a perception of space and time. A very thorough argument he made for that. Very complete. I don't know if any of you have ever studied philosophy, but but in our own Western history, without having to refer to Eastern traditions, and and this is now an embedded part of modern Western understanding of reality: is that the mind can only perceive reality in its own terms, and can and what. In anything beyond that is the great unknown. So Kant chose to use space and time to, to develop his arguments. And it was a good choice, too, because even in Buddhism, there's the recognition that you know if we call all of this the way we perceive it form, as we progressively simplify it and... Uh, Penetrate to the uh, the level of understanding where there is the least imposition of the mind's own projections onto it. That the last thing to go when we move from what's called the the realm of form to the formless realm, the last thing to go is the projection of space. You know, in terms of the jhanas. The last of the form jhanas uh, still has within it the sense that the yogi is located in a particular place in space. And the first of the formless jhanas is, is called the base of infinite space because the mind has let go, has ceased to impose spatial limitation on perception. So, 
space and time are very fundamental things that our mind imposes on experience in order to generate a view of the world as it is, and Kant realized this and discussed it. And then, a long time later, somewhere between 100, 200 years, something like that, physicists realized basically the same thing, that there was some property of the unknowable out there that they were studying that corresponded to dimensions, but that time, first of all, Einstein figured out, well, time and space are really the same thing. They're not two different things. There's just four dimensions. And then subsequently, it didn't take very long after that realization for uh, physicists to discover that a lot that hadn't been understandable about the way things behaved before was understandable as soon as you accepted that that there was no inherent or intrinsic limitation of this property to four dimensions. And so they could start explaining all kinds of things by just uh, when something needed an extra dimension, they would instead say, well, uh, instead of saying, oh, that's not possible, they'd say, oh, well, there must be another dimension there. And so they would add it in. So, you see, we've made huge progress this way. And, and on the spiritual path, we do exactly the same thing. We, if, once we can let go of our attachment to things really being the way they appear to be, that frees the thinking part of the mind to think about things in different ways and discover different things. And it opens it up. So, this, uh, the self that searches for the self, it is the same reflexive mind. The reflexive mind examining itself as it always has. But you add to that, that new dimension of understanding which really, you know, we talk about uh, we're attached to the view of self and we say that learn to understand the true nature of self. But the whole secret to that is really nothing more than embracing the idea that the self that you see is not the real self. That's the, all, that's the key. You're, you've spent your whole life believing in this and you don't need, there's not some other huge mis- mysterious amount of information or some mystical insight or anything else needed to break through this. You just merely need to accept the idea that what you are seeing isn't necessarily what you've always thought it was and therefore be willing to see it on its own terms. And when you do that, you look inside to see, okay, well, what am I? Okay. Am I my body? You work your way through that way. Am I my mind? And this is where you're going to spend most of your time. Well, I certainly seem to be my mind. Although there's some parts of my mind that I can freely let go of, they're not me. And then you get down to this, but there's this consciousness. Consciousness must be me. You know, there's this doer. That's me. You know. But if you, if you're, all, all you need to do is be willing to let go of your preconceptions and let the reflective mind examine itself on its own terms without imposing anything. And the reflexive mind can begin to see and understand 
its own nature in a way that hasn't happened before. You know, you're just reminding me, when I was a kid, I used to do that all the time. Like, I used to, I grew up Catholic, and I, I kept trying to figure out what the soul was and yeah. where it was located, and it drove me crazy because I yeah. couldn't find it. Right. It's like, what is it, you know? And it just made me nuts, you know? I would sit there all the time trying to figure it out, and I'd ask my mom, well, what is it? Where is it? What, what, why do I have black marks on it? You know, like, and I couldn't get it, you know? And I think that's probably why I eventually drifted away from Catholicism. That's the wisdom of children. <laughs> um, in searching for myself, I've come to understand that karma is flowering in front of me constantly. Everything that I perceive is from my karma. So that leads me to believe that what I'm looking at is simply a mirror of my karma. Or, you know, I can't really use the word me. But it was recently explained to me that it's more on the line of two mirrors facing each other. Mm-hmm. And I really don't have a concept of that's that's where I got lost. I don't know if you could speak to emptiness a little bit. And, uh, mm-hmm. Well, the idea of two mirrors facing each other that that is a good way because otherwise, you know, uh, if you just Think of your, your, what you'll do is you'll think of yourself as a self looking in a mirror. And so you still have the idea of the self. So it's a very clever and, and perhaps helpful way to, to break that projection by saying, well, it's really two mirrors looking at each other. And then you realize that just as the reflection in the mirror I'm looking at is empty, then if I'm also a mirror, then I must be equally empty. But That's, that's, a, that's a beautiful, clever idea, and it expresses a truth of it. But it might not necessarily make everything click into place and say, oh, aha, instead you're left with... And, and this is basically the problem that we always... It's the tendency to always keep, you know, no matter how much we reduce it, somehow we always feel, and this is a problem Rene Descartes had too, that... At the end of the process, there's got to be somebody who's seeing whatever it is that's being looked at, you know, the ghost in the machine. And because this is this is the way your mind works. Almost, not quite, but it's almost as much a part of the inherent workings of the mind as the perception of space and time is, is that there must always be at the top of the pyramid or the end of the line or however you think of it, at the end of the process of the reduction, no matter how simple, how refined, how small, you're going to have this nucleus that still corresponds to the self who is the experiencer. And that is the basic fallacy. Um, a really good way to use the mirror, looking in the mirror analogy is, as I say, if you can spend some time thinking of the self as what, as the illusion that's produced when the mind looks at the mind. 
when the mind reflexively turns back on itself and looks at itself. And it's in the role of both subject and object. Uh, now that doesn't work very well if you still have a lot of subtle attachment to the idea of mind as self and the mind as substantially as being a substantially real entity. For that to work, you have to say, okay, to understand the self, I need to examine the mind. What you'll find there, as soon as you start to examine the mind, is it's not one thing. That's the first thing that becomes really obvious if, if you're willing to let go of the illusion that the mind is a thing. It's a multitude of different processes. The mental processes. And operating sometimes more or less autonomously, and other times uh, interacting quite intensively. But there's a tremendous number of processes. And uh, there is not a process on the top of the heap, so to speak, that's running everything. So when you start to see that, then get past the unitary idea of mind, then you can start examining the different mental processes. You know, oh, there's the part of me that always reacts this way to this kind of thing. How did it come to be that way? And if you look at it, you'll say, oh, well, that's because earlier in my life, this happened and this happened, and, you know, it always does that because it's conditioned to do that. And if you see that in just a few simple examples, then the mind says, aha, I bet the same principle is operating in all these different mental processes, that they all got to be the way they are as a result of past conditioning. Well, that's in fact what we mean by karma anyway. You know. uh, and we don't need to get into a discussion of, of where we want to place or how we want to describe the karma, but we can just accept that that all of these myriad of, of interacting uh, uh, mental processes that we refer to mind are the way they are as the result of conditioning. And then you realize that, well, uh, what does it mean for me to be conscious? Well, it's some of these mental processes are taking in information from the senses and, and in collusion with some other mental processes are creating whatever it is that I'm aware of in the moment. And the rest of the mental processes are having a look at it and knowing it. Uh, and the mental processes that happen to be presenting the current reality in the workspace of the mind are constantly changing. They're not the same ones now that they were when you were having breakfast or, uh, or the ones that will be operating a little later when you're meditating. Or, I mean, they're constantly changing. And so the ones that are playing the role of audience and being the observer is constantly changing as well. So you see, now can you start to relate that more with the mirror watching or watching the mirror? What's really wonderful about all of this, though, is this is just the prelude. This is just, as soon as you realize 
that. This is the self that you've always thought you were, and that is not unitary, uh, and uh, it's not enduring, and it's not unchangeable, and all of your ideas about, well, this is the way I am, and there's nothing I can do about it, is a bunch of nonsense. That if everything you are is a result of causes and conditions, then everything that is due to causes and conditions is subject to change. And so this is, this creates the possibility for soul creation. If I don't really have the kind of self or soul, if you don't have the kind of self or soul that you were looking for when you were a child, because you were told it's already pre-existing and it's enduring and it's there and if you look hard enough you'll find it. And if you look hard enough, instead you find it's just a whole bunch of things that have been programmed to be the way they are almost randomly. And this is the way it is. But now you realize that you you can begin to play an active role, a creative role. You can create uh, a self, uh, or you can create something that is a whole lot better facsimile of a self than what you started out with when you recognize this nature of what you are. To do a good job of that, there's other things about the self that you have to recognize. Because you could you could create a self that was unified and powerful and that ultimately only uh, well the problem with any self is that you if you attach to it and believe in it as being real it is subject to causes. It's created by causes and conditions. It's subject to change and cessation. And uh, that self as a separate entity can never be fully satisfied and, and fulfilled. So you have to realize that the other key ingredient in this self or soul that you as a child were looking for and that we've always assumed that we are, this is a very powerful, deeply embedded thing, is that sense of separateness. And this, you have to recognize that this has been at the root of all of the problems of yourself. Because as long as you saw yourself as separate from what was not self, the, the boundary between the two has been and will continue to be a battleground. You can enter into a process of conscious self-creation that still has this boundary. And all that will mean is you might, at least for a little while, win more often at the, at the battleground that is the interface between self and other. But it won't bring lasting happiness. And it won't, in fact, reflect any sort of ultimate reality. Because the ultimate reality is that any self and any boundary that distinguishes a self from not-self is something that is generated by the mind and has no substantial reality to it. It is purely an illusion. And so, if you do the best job you can at self-creating, you're eventually going to lose in the battles that take place at this boundary and you're eventually going to suffer. But, if 
as a part of your process of conscious self-creation, you recognize the falsity of that notion from the very beginning. And that what is more true is that there is no real distinction between self and other. Then you can create a self with goals and conditioning that are of the type that don't create battles at the, at the interface. You can become a powerful kind of self who is not inevitably subject to the suffering that comes from separate selfhood and does not inflict suffering on the other for the sake of trying to preserve that separate selfhood. And so this is where positive self-creation comes into it. This is where you can say, okay, as long as I'm in a body with a brain and a mind that functions the way it does, well, let me switch things around so instead of being a separate self, I'm a self that is a unified part of the whole, of that which is greater than me and transcends me and and which I don't even need to fully understand to know that I'm a part of it. And then let me take all these different parts of myself and recondition them in a new way so that they stop doing things to make me unhappy and other people unhappy. And so then we can be, then we can be living Buddhas. about um, an exercise given at a retreat where, um, in a dyad, where people gathered facing each other Mm -hmm. and for three uh, different segments uh, of this particular exercise, three minutes for each segment, they were asked to do the following. um, Facing each other and looking at each other's eyes, blinking as needed, but otherwise not looking around. The first was that they um, looked at uh, each other and um, were guided to um, think about um, the fact that this person um, in front of them was a person who had um, suffered great, great, great things in their life, as everyone does, Mm -hmm. and uh, had great sorrows and losses and so on, just looking. And then they looked away and a few minutes went by. And then the second instruction was look at this person and um, see that they had had great joys and happiness and great loves and passions in their life. Anyway, so it progressed for three times. At the end of the exercise, what was reported is that um, the other became themselves. So they actually saw themselves projected on the other and that the boundaries disappeared. Yeah. And so this is this is a kind of exercise that is attempting to perhaps get at as a phenomena. Now is this a, a is is this a, this is this kind of approach to see this non self and to see our connectedness so in, Delibly etched on some on, on our outside. Is this is this kind of approach uh, a valid one or a, a, an interesting one to, to help the growth of our awareness? 
Very, very much so. Very, very much so. Uh, the truth is, uh, in, in a sense, that you can eventually start to come to understand more and more clearly. Uh, we are each other, you know. I am you, you are me, in a sense that uh, you have to discover on your own. But these are tools by which to do that. Uh, in the Buddhist tradition, the first and, and clearest teaching of it that I'm aware of was the Buddha himself. Uh, in a sutra that's come down to us as, uh, called the Four Applications of Mindfulness, repeats, there's a refrain that he repeats over and over again there. I used to know the exact number, but it's like 22 or something. It's a big number of times. Throughout this entire quite lengthy sutra des describing many different practices for practicing mindfulness of the body, of the feelings, and mental states, and mental objects. He says over and over again, See this in yourself. See this in others. See this in both yourself and others. And when you when you read those practices and you you do that, you say, "Okay, I see. I see that I am this way. Ah, I see that you are this way. I see that we are both this way." There's a couple of interesting things that happen that are directly applicable to the application of the practices. One, of course, is that um, I can see things more easily in you than I can in myself. So if I see it in myself, I see this kind of thing, and I turn around and I look for it in you, I'll see it a lot more clearly, and I'll therefore know what I've already seen in myself better. But the other thing, too, is I've seen this in myself, I know the truth of it, and I understand subjectively more how it fits into why I am the way I am. So when I see it in you, there's going to be far less of the kind of judgment we ordinarily bring. I'm neither going to put you on a pedestal because of it, nor look down on you because of it, because I see it in a more genuine and real way. But this practice inevitably leads to seeing ourselves in others, and seeing others in ourselves, of course, and recognizing the oneness. And there is uh, uh, this practice is is found in other forms, but it's, it is a very explicit practice in the Tibetan tradition of seeing yourself in others and just practicing doing that and doing this in increasingly uh, profound ways. Uh, always, in any situation you're in, setting aside what I want, what I need, and putting yourself in the place of the other. Okay, what does this person need? What does this person want? And um, what is it like to be this person? And respond to that person as if they were yourself powerfully, very, very powerfully makes it clear how we are all ultimately, we're all ultimately the same consciousness, experiencing the same pleasure and the same pain, but building vastly different stories around that experience. 
So it's very good practices. And that sort of dyadic practice is, uh, it's, a, it's a focused, guided application of these same principles, and a good thing to do. It seems, just um, quickly, because I know the time, but it seems, um, and Sujata and I have been talking about it a lot, um, that, that Buddhism meeting the West and being here for now some years mm-hmm. is, is, is incorporating techniques of awakening, such as these dyads. I mean, I can't imagine this may be taking place in Burma. 500 years ago. Right. <laughs> you know, but, but, but East is meeting West, mm-hmm. and Buddhism seems to be morphing in terms of its manifestation, of its teaching, not the core, necessarily the core teaching, mm-hmm. where, it's, where ultimately we're going within ourselves yeah. as we grow in, through, through Buddhism. Mm-hmm. But, but it seems to be a very interesting phenomenon that's taking place as East meets West in this, in this uh, manifest, manifesting tools. Yes, it is. Um, throughout the history of Buddhism, as it's moved into different cultures, it's undergone uh, a revitalization, and uh, never has it stayed the same. One of the things that's so confusing as it comes to the West is we look to the East and we see how different Zen Buddhism is from Tibetan Buddhism and from Theravadan Buddhism and from Chinese uh, Chan Buddhism and so forth. And, and it's like, uh, well, with the degree of objectivity that we have, at first we would say, these aren't even the same Buddhism. But... Buddhism is going to undergo the same kind of revitalization having come to the West, with a difference. In the past, it moved from one particular discrete uh, cultural uh, milieu where it had developed a particular form different from others into a new situation, and that particular form became transformed. Now we've got all these different ones coming together. And likewise, it's, as it has always when it's moved into a new culture, it becomes integrated with what already exists and is a present as a part of that culture. So that's what, that's what we are starting to see happening, and we will see much more of, and it's absolutely essential. Because without exception, the Buddhism that comes to us from the East is a Buddhism that says that true awakening only happens to very, very few select individuals out of huge numbers that strive for it. And that in general, all of those who succeed are the ones who give up the world and go to monasteries or go to caves or go to forests or hermitages or things like that. And the world is in a stage uh, well, I, I, I don't need to, you know the circumstances that this world is in. And it got there because of this hugely successful human population that has been, as always, compelled 
in their actions by uh, uh, greed and hatred and ignorance. You know, to the extent that even as culturals, as as cultures, uh, we still hold uh, those false values up as as being the values of our cultures, and they've created the situation that we're in. So. We really need a powerfully revitalized Buddhism that's accessible to large numbers of people. And, uh, and those large numbers of people, need, there need to be a lot of successes if we are going to continue just to make things worse and worse and worse <laughs> until the whole situation falls apart. Beth? Yeah, the other part of that conversation was about the dangerous are also involved in the psychologizing of, of Buddhism in the West. Um, and we see it over and over again where Buddhism is used very successfully to attain a lot of secular goals, stress relief, um, dealing with pain, um, things like that, without going for, forward for the spiritual realization. And that's what... Yeah. Hopefully, we can keep within Buddhism while keeping some of the psychologizing aspects that we bring to it. I think that that is only a danger to the degree that we forget where it comes from and what its ultimate purpose is. it, it's a, it has been a very powerful and effective way for uh, meditation and, and Buddhist ideas to be incorporated into uh, the what we call the establishment, because um, John Kabat-Zinn and all of these other people who have brought mindfulness in as a uh, as a psychotherapeutic technique. Um, have allowed it to become very well recognized and, and, and established in that way, and that's a really good thing. And the people who have come to accept it on those terms, many of them still, if you mentioned awakening or enlightenment to them, you know, it's like their eyes would roll up and they'd, excuse me, I gotta go to the washroom. Sorry. <laughs> So we've got to keep the core that, that really understands that <laughs> that's where it goes. Right. So, yeah. I, as a psychotherapist, um, I <laughs> wow, I'm going through really heavy stuff because I always had this sense of self as helping to heal people and this being part of the greater good and all of this stuff. And now I see myself more as a transmission rebuilder. (laughs) You know, I help people to feel more comfortable in their craziness. You know, and there's a part of the spiritual part of me that wants to just cheek me and go, wake up, wake up, this is what it's really about. You know, it's not not about that. Mm -hmm. You know, you you aren't your pain. You, You aren't your, you know, your relationship, you know, you, you aren't even a separate you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 I mean, I'd be out of business 
<laughs> yes. Uh, well, and that has that has always been the the approach that you know we, we we try to become as comfortable as we can in our pain until it's over with. <laughs> until we die. <laughs> until we die. So, uh, and. And it's been very hard for people to believe that there's any other option. <laughs> but there's also the fact that um, when the pain is too great, I mean, the, recognizing the pain is what motivates us to find a way to overcome it. And so too much anesthesia is not a good thing. right? And really that's what uh, in in this very temporary and unusual and unrepeatable period in history when there has been so much material prosperity and technological uh, advances and uh, everything else, you know, we, we, we've done the experiment of trying to distract ourselves out of pain with the anesthesia, with all of the anesthesia that our society involves. But what we've discovered in that is that that eventually the anesthesia wears off, but the pain doesn't. So, um, but we also find that when you're too messed up, you don't have any. You don't really have any hope of, of, of solving your problem. Anyway. So, we've got to. We we do. You know, there's there's still a very important role to be played by therapists of all kinds of uh, making people temporarily well enough to work on the real problem. <laughs> so. so you might have to make a subtle tweaking in your, in, in your approach, but I, you still have a really important role to play. Not what I thought it was. <laughs> Well, I know that at least some of you came here to meditate rather than to listen to me. So, <laughs> so it's time to 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 do that. Thank you for this discussion. You know, and uh, I count on your questions to bring things out. But I cheated this time. <laughs> so go ahead and take a few minutes just to. Briefly to, to stretch your legs. If you do need to go to the washroom, go right.